following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Looking in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 7. And uh, we're going to be looking at our mission. And uh, probably most of us have a good sense or idea of what our mission is individually as well as the church. Uh, So this isn't necessarily anything new, but it's always good to refresh and remind ourselves of our mission. It really is important to know why it is we do what we do and what we're supposed to be about. Um, This was illustrated to me many years ago when I was the director of of a Bible youth camp. And, uh, you know, one of the joys of camping is that you're constantly having to clean buildings. And, you know, the kids come, they just trash everything, make a mess, and you're just this constant battle to clean things. And training staff, helping staff understand, you know, what clean is, right? And I remember one day walking into the dining room in one of the facilities, and there's a lot of carpet, and it's not an easy job cleaning. And, you know, these poor high school kids get paid nothing to do this, you know. Um, and there was this one high school student vigorously running the vacuum over the carpet, you know. And I'm looking at where they've been. And, like, where they've vacuumed is actually dirtier than where they haven't. I think, what is going on here, you know. And I walk up to this student. And I said, you know, what do you, you know did you notice the floor? Well, no, not really. Well, you know, after some investigation, we discovered that the vacuum fan belt on the vacuum was on backwards. So it was sucking dirt in. It was actually blowing dirt out. And this student was just blindly going along, having a good time, exercising the vacuum, taking the vacuum on a walk, right? Wearing out the carpet, but wasn't actually fulfilling the mission. And I said, you don't understand the goal here is to make the floor cleaner. Which means you've know, you got to watch what you're doing, and if it's not getting cleaner, there's a problem. And just exercising the vacuum isn't going to make the dirt go away, right? Um, and that was kind of an ongoing battle there, trying to teach them the mission, the goal we're trying to accomplish. But I think oftentimes the church, uh, and in our own lives, it's really easy to get to lose track of why it is we do what we do. And it's so easy to just start going through emotions and routines without a clear vision or, or concept of what the mission is. And so we're doing stuff, we're busy, we're engaged, we're active, but uh, are we accomplishing what God has called us to? Are we completing and fulfilling the mission that God has given us? It's amazing that throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, it's very clear that God is on a mission, but that He's basically entrusted the fulfillment of this mission to us. That he has put in our hands the success of his mission. Amazing things. And he could have done this a whole lot easier without our help, actually. And uh, if I were God, good thing I'm not, if I were God, I don't know that I would have had the courage to go about it this way, to hand all this into the hands of the likes of us. But he has. So we've got to be very clear that we're clear about this mission. And Paul understood this mission. Uh, 
it's really easy to think that, you know, this talk of mission and strategy and visions and all this is just a modern invention. But Paul very clearly understood his personal mission, and his personal mission was very much connected to God's plan and his mission or vision for the church as a whole. And especially in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul paints a, a, a picture of our mission in terms of not individual ministry, but in terms of what the church as a whole ought to be accomplishing, uh, ultimately in, within our midst, in, in and of ourselves. So let me review just a little bit. Uh, verses 1 through 4, uh, actually 1 through 6, Paul talks about walking worthy. And he says to walk worthy, we as a church, we as a body of believers, need to be walking in oneness of the Spirit. And he said, and he's very realistic about this, and he, he understands that we're not all equally mature. In fact, he recognizes that we need special gifts to deal with, deal with each other's immaturity. And uh, that we need patience, long-suffering, love, kindness to put up with our quirkiness. Because as individuals, as a church, as a body, we're not all mature yet. We're not all there yet. So he says you've got to be patient with each other. You've got to put up with each other. You're going to drive each other crazy because you're not all mature yet. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, God has given us gifts to grow and mature each other up as a body of Christ. And so in verses 7 onward, he talks about the gifts that God has given. And let me read, starting in verse 7. He says, However, God has given each one of us a special gift or a grace through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens, so that he might fill everything with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers... Their responsibility is to equip God's people so that they can do the work of ministry and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every new wind of teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clear, uh, so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So, uh, in this, Paul gives a clear picture of our mission. So let's look at it. First of all, he starts, talks about these gifts that he's given, and then in verse 7, he begins to unfold and unpack what the mission is that he's given us these gifts for. And he says uh, that these gifts have been given, uh, we'll jump all the way down actually to verse 12, uh, the responsibility of teachers, those, those with the public ministry of the word, is to teach and equip everybody in the body to do its work of ministry. Then in 13, verse 13 he says, This continues until we come to such unity in faith and knowledge 
of God's Son that he, we will be mature in the Lord, attaining maturity according to the standard of Christ. He gives us in this verse two goals of our mission. Uh, and by the way, I believe the mission is to be... Uh, well, we'll see. Let's talk about goals first. The goal. Go to the next slide, if it works. Goal number one, uh, the main goal, is to be like Jesus. And he, he breaks this down into two parts. The first goal is the goal of faith and knowledge. And it's interesting that throughout this passage, he makes it very clear that he's talking not individually. Uh, so much of our own life is consumed with our own life. So much of us are focused on our own spiritual growth. But all the language that he uses through these verses speaks about uh, what we do together collectively as the body of Christ, as the church. So he's very much focused here on the big picture of all of us together growing. And he says that, verse 13, this will continue, this, will keep, this process will keep going on and on until we all come together to share together one faith and one knowledge of, 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 of Jesus. So the first goal is the goal of, of growing together in faith and knowledge. Uh, and these two things, these two concepts are linked together. Faith and knowledge. What does he mean when he puts together these two concepts, faith and knowledge? Um, they, they really are two parts of the same thing. Uh, and he's talking here about the body of Christ, the whole church, exercising confidence in God. Confident assurance in God's promises and what God's going to do. It's a picture of a church that goes and marches out boldly with confidence that God is going to accomplish all his will and purpose. All right? And he, he links this faith, this confidence, this boldness, with the concept of a, of a knowledge of Jesus. The word that's used there has the idea of a clear or accurate or complete knowledge. Okay, not just a knowledge, but to know something fully and completely. Uh, well, the knowledge he's talking about there identifies as the knowledge of Jesus. And really the faith here is faith in Jesus. So how does this work? How do faith and knowledge work together? Well, a great example or illustration of this comes from the Gospels uh, in Mark where Jesus uh, and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee one night. And uh, they decided to go on a little midnight cruise, uh, get away from the crowds, get away from the distractions. I think, I think, you know, Jesus' life was so bombarded with people. I think probably his favorite place in the whole world was the Sea of Galilee, because he spent a lot of time there. Because, you know, the boat was small, and he could get away from the crowds, and you get, a, you know, you get out there ways, and most people could swim really good or walk on water, which he was pretty much the only one that could do that. He could really get away. And so he liked, he liked that. And he was out there on the Sea of Galilee, escaping the crowds, escaping the burden of ministry and teaching and taking care of people. He's out there with his disciples. And uh, it's late at night. And it says that Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat. He's tired. He's exhausted. And as they're rowing their way across the Sea of Galilee, this huge storm comes up. Huge storm. Fierce winds. The waves start rising. And soon the... The waves are crashing over the side of the boat and beginning to swamp the boat. And I don't know, I'm guessing they had some kind of buckets. I'm guessing they were prepared. I don't know if they were just there with their hands. But the disciples are there trying to bail water as fast as they can, right? And it becomes apparent to them that they can't bail fast enough. They don't have enough buckets or they don't have enough hands or whatever. But all of a sudden, these experienced fishermen, these guys who spent a lot of time on the Sea of Galilee, 
it dawns on them, we're sinking. And we're in the middle here, and we, didn't, we forgot to bring life jackets. And we don't have a lifeboat. And, you know, it's not looking good. And it says that they began to panic. You know, this whole time, where's Jesus? He's still sleeping. I don't know how he could do this. I mean, waves crashing, storm, wind blowing. Uh, he was really tired. Or he was faking it. I, had this, I always had this theory he was faking it. He's kind of looking out one eye. <laughs> They're not freaked out enough yet. I'll pretend I'm asleep. I don't know. But Jesus is asleep, right? And the boat is sinking, and the disciples are terrified. And they're convinced they're sinking. And they finally rush to Jesus, and they say, shout to him, Wake up! Don't you care that we are about to drown? Okay? Now, interesting statement. Uh, as if caring that they're going to drown would do something about it. And I don't know if they thought Jesus would be one more hand, pair of hands to bail or what. I'm not sure what they're thinking. I don't think, given the response from what happens at the end, that they were expecting Jesus to just tell the storm to go away. I don't think that's what they were after here. Um, Jesus wakes up, he sees the situation, and he says, Still be quiet! Hush! Okay, he wasn't talking to the disciples, he was talking to the waves and the sea. And instantly... It becomes glassy calm. No waves, no wind. Um, pretty impressive, right? Pretty impressive. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, he says some amazing things. He says, why were you so afraid? Don't you have any faith yet? Don't you have any faith yet? Where is your faith? Right? Now, if I'd have been in the boat, I would have been just like the disciples. Because nothing, there's nothing in me that would have said, oh, it's not a problem. I know we're about to sink, but Jesus has got it all under control, right? Um, but Jesus says, Where, where's your faith? Why are you so afraid? And then it says that the disciples were even more terrified. And they asked this question. They said, who is this? Who in the world is this in the boat with us? This guy just told the wind to stop, and it stopped dead. Who is this guy? This is like Mark chapter 4 early on, okay? This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and they... They really don't have a clue who Jesus is. And you see, faith and knowledge get very closely linked in that story, don't they? Had, had this happened later, say, for example, this had happened after the resurrection. After they'd seen Jesus crucified, they'd heard and seen all that he taught, they understood all that his life was about, they'd seen him raise people from the dead, they'd seen everything that he did. And they'd seen himself crucified and then rose again, and they were maybe out on the boat and this happened and Jesus calmed the storms. They would say, oh yeah, oh yeah. We know Jesus. He can do stuff like that. It's no big deal for him. In fact, Paul would have said, he just wrote, you know, this is the Jesus who's seated high above every power and authority. He reigns and rules over everything. See, there's a, there's a direct link between what we know to be true about who Jesus is and our faith. You can't believe in things that you don't know, right? Uh, you know, not to wreck, you know, for a lot of small children here, but how many of you really believe in the tooth fairy? Right, you know? Uh, yeah. Kids do because they put the p tooth under their pillow and it disappears. Therefore, there must be a tooth fairy. Right? But then there comes an age of giving up on that kind of faith because we know more things. Right? Well, faith and knowledge are deeply connected. And so Paul says... That the number one goal of the church, the number one thing we are to be about, is to be coming to a oneness of faith and knowledge. 
that the church would come to a place where it so possesses a knowledge of who Jesus is and who God is and what His power is, what His might is, what His, what his purpose and plan is, what His heart is, that we can stand confidently in the knowledge of that Jesus and the work that He wants to do in us and through us. Right, so those things are deeply connected, faith and knowledge. Um, you know, how are we doing as a church growing in faith and knowledge? How are we doing at possessing this kind of knowledge of Jesus that gives us such a confidence we're absolutely unsh- unshakable, absolutely unmovable? Okay, now individually there are certainly great examples of that. Collectively as the whole church, how are we doing at that? If you were to give the church universal a grade on being this powerful, dominant force that was so convinced of who Jesus is, it just bowled through uh, the darkness. Well, uh, I don't want to... I mean, it's kind of fun, you know. It's fun to just bash the church. It's fun to bash and criticize these things. So let's do that this morning. Uh, you know, is the church really this fortress that's unstoppable at, at this moment in history? I don't know. Uh, it's interesting that this time when uh, there's more books and material and information available more stuff being printed about God and about Jesus. It's significant that we are living in a time when, among educated people who have access to those resources, their general knowledge of the Bible is going down dramatically. Just, just general basic knowledge of the Bible. We're not necessarily talking about what they know about Jesus personally. Just their general knowledge of the Bible, you know, like, is the book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament or the New? Does anybody know the answer to that question? See, look, that's the proof right there. Because in neither, right? There's no book of Hezekiah. Ah, got you. Um, General knowledge of the Bible is going down, decreasing, decreasing by each generation. Um, One of the saddest saddest tests of this, you know, when when Jesus uh, was woke up in the boat, his question to them was, why are you so afraid? You know, if you want to really test something, if you want to test how knowledge and faith are acting within the church, all you have to do is ask, are we afraid? Are people living with the confidence that has melted every fear, or are people consumed with worry? I was reminded, just in, just in the last week, within a period of about five days, I got word of two different people that I had connections with, I didn't know well, but I knew of, who had taken their own life. One of them was a pastor of a church, the other one had graduated from Bible school, had been in the church, had been a leader in the church. Uh, people who you know, had difficulties in their life, and sadly, they didn't, they didn't have the knowledge of Jesus to give them confidence to conquer those fears. Uh, is the church strong in this area? Probably not as strong as it needs to be. Probably not where it needs to be. Uh, individually, I hope that we all are growing in this. But as far as the church universal, I think we have work to do. Second goal, so that's the first goal. The first goal, uh, knowledge and truth. I'm sorry, knowledge and faith. Knowledge and faith. Okay, We should be building up the body in those areas. Second goal, he says, uh, verse 13, that we would, we would, we would grow in knowledge and, tr- and, and faith, uh, uh, in the Son of God, and that we would grow up. 
Okay, literally the word there is, means to grow into maturity, to grow up. Okay, we'd be growing up, and the measure of grown-upness, he says, is the full stature or measure of Jesus himself. Can okay, I really believe this is the ultimate mission of the church? Ultimately, our mission as a church, our mission individually and corporately, is that we, collectively together as the body of Christ, would be growing up to be like Jesus. Okay, I told you this is nothing revolutionary. It's like, I know nobody's going, wow, I didn't know that. And we all know that, right? Goal of our life is to what? Well, to be like Christ. Goal of the church is that the church would be like Christ. Okay, it's not anything new. Uh, but Paul talks here about being mature. Okay, maturity means that you've come to the full stature, the full measure of what you were intended to be. Okay, it means, you know, if you're grown up, it means you're tall and you're strong and you're not afraid of the dark anymore. Okay? I don't know when that happened in my life, but I remember being very afraid of the dark and now I'm not. Okay? And it's because, part of it's because I know I'm bigger than most of the things in the dark and so I'm just not worried about it anymore. Well, that's maturity, right? It's interesting, the word that Paul actually used here is not to be just grown up, but it says to be a full-grown man, to be strong, to be uh, self-governing, to be able to take care of yourself, right? Um, reaching to the full stature. Uh, and the measure of that is to have the character and likeness of Christ. Um, not only individually, but corporately as a body of Christ, we ought to be uh, exhibiting all the characteristics and nature of who Christ is. What is Jesus like? Uh, is he driven by economic problems? Was Jesus worried and concerned about the stock market? Uh, was Jesus worried about his own personal support? You know, frantically sending out prayer letters. Do you think Jesus sent out prayer letters? I don't I don't see him doing that, right? Um, was Jesus like that? No. Uh, what was Jesus like? He was totally focused on the will of God. He was totally, absolutely committed to the work of God. He was, in everything he did, in every relationship, absolutely demonstrating God's love and goodness. He sacrificed himself daily and ultimately sacrificed his life uh, on the cross, showing and demonstrating God's love to others. Uh, that's what the church should be like. And the church will reach maturity when collectively as a universal body, we are exhibiting and characterized by those kind of attributes and characteristics. Where we as a church uh, are living out Jesus to the world. Well, same thing. How are we doing there? Uh, is the church characterized by the qualities that mark Jesus. That doesn't mean the church is ever going to be popular. The reality is that Jesus himself got killed because the world hated him. right? So the world's not ever necessarily going to view the church as a positive body. But do they view the church in light of the characteristics that Jesus possessed? Uh, Jesus was meek, lowly, and humble. Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners, prostitutes, poor people, orphans, and children. Are those the things that characterize the church? Is the church known for being uh, not influential in government, but influential in small ways with children, with poor, with those in need?
I'll let you evaluate on your own. How is the church measuring up uh, here in Thailand, in, in Asia, in your home country? How is the church, church's reputation as portraying the embodiment of Jesus? Well, that's our goal, and that really is the mission. And it's important for us to realize that the mission ultimately is focused on the church, not the world. And you might say, well, what about the Great Commission? I thought the goal was the Great Commission. We're supposed to go into the uttermost parts of the world and you know, bring people to Christ. Well, ultimately, we are to do that, but why are we to do that? To save the world or to build up the body of Christ? It says, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Well, what's a disciple? Well, a disciple is somebody who's part of the church, part of the body of Christ. Can we get this kind of confused? It's kind of like, if uh, you know, back about 100 years ago, you could actually order a house through like a Sears catalog. And uh, you just could order it, and, and they would just deliver this bundle of lumber, and that was your house. Now imagine if you, you know, ordered your house, and it shows up, and here's this bunker of lumber and nails and windows and doors and carpet, everything you need. And you say, there you go, I've got a house. I went out, I got the stuff, and boom, there it is, there's a house, right? I did the job. I got a house. And you show your wife, and your wife says, that's not a house. It's just a pile of junk, right? Where's the house? Well, that's the house. Well, it's not a house. It's the materials for the house. But you got to put it together, okay? you got to have a front door. you got to be able to go inside, right? Well, the goal is not just to assemble the materials. Okay, that's evangelism. Assemb- assembling people into the body. But then the work begins. A building the body into the church. That's our mission. Okay, that's the mission. That's the only thing that God is concerned about. In the end, there will be the body of Christ, the church that represents and embodies who Jesus is, who embodies his glory, right, and shines to all the world who and all that Jesus is. That's the mission. And there is nothing else. Um, so the vision, you know, if you have a mission statement, the next thing you do is you have a vision statement, right? What does this look like? What does this look like in everyday life? Well, Paul gives some great pictures of what this looks like. And he, for his, first, his first picture is a negative one. He says in verse 14, then we will no longer be childish. Okay, what this does not look like is immaturity and childishness. Okay, sadly, you know, if we were honest, if we were to char- characterize the church in our own home countries, maybe the church we came from, uh, honestly, a lot of it's pretty childish, right? People arguing, people fighting about silly things, uh, people bouncing from one church to another, fi- trying to find the best show. Right? They like the show at this church, so they go to the next church. This pastor is more entertaining than that pastor. Okay, this person, this pastor tells better jokes. Uh, this church has a big screen TV, and they do video clips. How cool is that? You know, this church has 900 programs, right? And so you can just take your pick of everything from, you know, uh, I, heard it, I heard just recently of a church that does this. They have video church. And you go into the, the sanctuary, the, the, the foyer, the, the, the lobby, the lobby, and there's a big menu. And they've got like one church service for old people where they sing hymns. And you go into this room. And they've got another church for people like teenagers. They have rock bandages, you know, Rock and roll, right? And everything in between. They've got the coffee church for the people who like to sit around and pretend they're at Starbucks and do church, right? All in one building. Well, who could come? Why, that sounds awesome, right? 
That's what we've turned the church into. Video church. Okay? Uh, how childish. How childish that we've become so self-consumed. We've become such a consumer-driven people that all we see is how church can t- cater to my individual selfish whims and wants. Okay, that's childishness. Paul says the church should not look childish. He says it should instead look like an adult. And he says the problem with this childishness is that when we're childish, we're blown around by every wind of, of doctrine, every false teaching. We're blown here and there. And the picture is not individually. Again, the picture that he's, he's talking about here is the whole church being blown this way and the whole church being blown that way. And the reality is that we're much more... Belie- and I know none of, none of us want to admit this. I hate this. I, I do not want to admit this. I hate to even say it. But I have to say it. We are much more herd creatures than we would like to admit. Okay? We are much more like each other than we would like to admit. We would like to think we stand alone. True, the church is going down and is childish, but then there's me. right? The living embodiment of what the church should be. They would just all be like me, right? But the reality is we are easily blown as a group. Blown. And the, and the reality is when the group gets blown, chances are we get sucked along with it, right? A uh, couple of uh, illustrations. You ever heard of the Crusades? Okay? The whole church, like, marched to Jerusalem and went to war. Okay? Because that was the thing to do. Have you ever heard of selling indulgences? You know, before the Reformation, the whole church was trying to buy their salvation, and a lot of a lot of a lot of clergy were cashing in, getting rich off the deal. I think we ought to go back to that. I could use a raise. Uh, instead, we'll sell we'll sell coffee. Uh, have you ever heard of this? Is one of my favorite ones. You ever heard of prohibition? If you didn't come from America, you may not have heard of prohibition, or if you're young, you may not have heard it. But Prohibition was a move in the United States back in, I believe, the 20s, where the church decided that the, the number one evil of the world, see, Europeans won't understand this, number one evil of the world was alcohol. Okay? And uh, the church went ballistic and actually had so much, so much power and had come together with such unity and force that they were actually able to pass laws to make drinking or possessing alcohol completely illegal in the United States. Can you believe that? Because Europeans are going, no wonder Americans are so confused. You know? um, amazing how the church can be swayed and pushed and moved. By the way, it was disastrous. Okay? It didn't work. It didn't work. They thought this would fix all of America's problems. It just created a whole new set of problems. Right. Um, well, it's easy to look at those, those back then, but what about modern-day winds that are blowing? Okay, like the modern-day wind of materialism that says God's purpose and plan for our life is to make us comfortable, wealthy, and happy. Right? Health and wealth gospel. that says it's God's purpose for your life. It's got, in fact, it's God's purpose for the world that everybody be as wealthy as, as we are in the West. That that's God's will. And that, God's, that the gospel is about bringing people up to our standard of living. Right? As if our standard of living is God ordained. Okay? We, 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 we believe that. The church believes that. If you don't believe the church believes that, go to any church in the West. 
and see how much money they spend on their buildings and on stuff. Go into our homes, in our own homes, okay? We believe we have a right to material possessions. Where does that come from? Out of Scripture? I don't think so. But the church is being moved that way, right? Blown that way. Uh, another modern-day trend that the church is buying large-scale is the modern-day attack of Scripture. Uh, 75%, this is in, in the United States, 75% of Christians, evangelical Christians in America, don't believe uh, in absolute truth. Okay, which, being translated, what that means is 75% of Christians in the United States don't believe the Bible is the absolute inspired Word of God. 75%. Okay, so we get, we get blown in large numbers. right? And Paul says that that's not a mark of maturity. Instead, a mature church is a church that can identify and recognize these false teachings and false beliefs and can stand up against it. Stand up for what's true. So he, he gives the positive. So that's a negative. It shouldn't look childish. The positive side, he says, instead, uh, we ought to be those who speak the truth in love. Okay, that's the positive side. Uh, what it should look like, what health and maturity should look like, is a church who speaks the truth in love. Now, let me explain this verse, because this gets, this gets misused a lot. Okay, what, what this does not mean, and this is not that this is not true, but this is not what it means. He's not talking about the church needs to just be more honest. Okay, and by honest, what we mean, what, how this gets used often, is that we be honest about what bugs us about other people, right? Like the other day, I was, I was getting my hair cut at a Thai you know, barbershop, and uh, this lady comes in, started talking to the lady cutting my hair, and the lady cutting my hair said, You're fat! <laughs> There's honesty. There's telling the truth. And the lady goes, No, I'm not fat. She goes, Yeah, you're fat. You're getting fatter. She says, I'm not getting fatter. It's, it's just my shirt. <laughs> I love that. My shirt's fat. I'm not fat. My shirt's fat. <laughs> Remember that line. Okay, somebody calls you fat. No, it's just I got a fat shirt. Okay, got to put the shirt on a diet. This shirt's been eating too much. Right? Well, um, yeah. That's not what it means. Okay, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, not that we shouldn't be honest. And not that there may not be times when we need to tell people this is the ultimate dilemma. Okay, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but just a pet peeve. You know, when your wife tells you, does this, does this look good on me? What are you supposed to say to that? No, it makes you look ugly? You know, you just get yourself in big trouble. Right? How do you tell the truth in love? What do you say? Say, no, it makes you look fat. No, no, the dress is fat. It's just a fat dress. I don't know. Um... <laughs> You lie in love, that's right. You love first, you worry about the rest later. But, but that's really not what he has in mind here, okay? He's not talking about that. What is the truth? What is the truth? When you look at all that he's been talking about through the whole book of Ephesians, it's clear that what he's talking about here is speaking Christ. Jesus is the truth, Right? Uh, he says at the end of, uh, end of chapter 3 in this amazing prayer where he prays and he says, you know, I pray that you would know the love of God, this love that's beyond knowledge, that you would experience and know in the depth of your being who Jesus is and his love for you, who God is and his incredible love for you. He says that love is, tr is life transforming. That there's nothing more important or significant you'll ever know than to know the truth of how much 
God loves you. See, that's the truth that he's talking about. That you would, and it ties back to what he just said, that the goal is that we would have faith and knowledge. That we would know who Jesus is with such depth. That we would know so fully and completely who he is that it would, it would just bring to life this incredible faith within us. And then he says that we would be going out as mature people speaking that truth in every single relationship we find ourselves in. That we would moment by moment, day by day, be building up the body by speaking Jesus into each other's lives. That's the only thing that's going to make a difference in growing up the church into the likeness of Christ. If if being like Jesus is the goal, the only way to get us there is to be speaking Jesus and truth about him into each other's lives so that gradually as a group we are focused on Jesus, loving Jesus, living Jesus in every part of our life. Speaking the truth in love. Um, And it doesn't mean it matter if we're speaking it to the unbeliever, to somebody who's been a believer their whole life. In every context, we are continually focused on speaking Christ, speaking Jesus, right? Uh, Lifting Him up. Uh, What does this look like? Well, he makes it clear that that the body grows in, in, in these relationships. We talked a couple weeks ago about ministering relationships. In fact, he kind of lays out the process um, in the last verse, he kind of summarizes everything and lays out this process. In the last verse, verse 16, he says, he makes, that is Jesus, makes the whole body fit together. Sadly, then the new living leaves out a part uh, that, that says Jesus supplies everything for the body and fits it together, literally is what it says. Uh, first thing is that Christ supplies all that we need. Okay? Uh, in this in this process of building each other up, building up the body, Jesus has given us everything we need. He's given us truth. He has given us uh, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, who have a public ministry of publicly proclaiming the word on a larger scale. That's part of the church. It says the church can't grow unless there's the public ministry of the word. That's the function of all those gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. The public proclamation of the word. Uh, He gives us His Word. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He's given us every resource we need. He's bringing people into the church with special gifts. You and I are all part of that. We are part of the equipping process of the church that God is supplying. So Jesus, as the head, uh, as the one in charge and control, is supplying every resource for the church to grow itself. But then secondly... He says, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Uh, He says that in order for it to grow, the body has to build itself up. And he uses, in the Greek, he uses the word being joined together with ligaments. It's very complicated, confusing. Ligaments joined and bonded together. Bottom line is this. We grow each other ultimately in personal relationships with each other. There is a place for public ministry on a bigger scale where teachers and people write books and we read and there's radio and all this stuff publicly. But that's not enough to grow up the body. In fact, he makes it very clear that those ministries only serve in the role of equipping us to do the ministry of growing each other. That's not the ministry. So if the only exposure we get to Christ-filling ministry is public teaching, books, 
you know, sermons online, whatever. That will not mature and grow you as an individual in Christ as God designed and intended. Instead, he said that we grow as each joint is knitted and fitted together. It has the idea that Jesus has uniquely positioned each part in its place for that moment to connect with and minister to other people. And the brilliant thing in this is that that means every single relationship you find yourself in, every context you find yourself in where you are in contact with another human being, especially a human being who's part of the body of Christ, ought to be, ought to be seen by us as a ministry opportunity. And a ministry opportunity means a chance to speak Christ into their life and in turn for them to speak Christ into our life. Okay, what does that look like? Well, uh, if I were the ultimate perfect pastor, which I am so many light years from being, uh, but, but there's this picture of the perfect pastor being the guy who's always kind of like holy, which, which I'm not always, and uh, always just dripping with, you know, pastoral stuff, right? And sometimes because I, I am a pastor, people kind of expect that of me, so it's easier to kind of do that. Like people will kind of pour out their heart and you're kind of expected to say something spiritual, right? <laughs> or like pray for them. Because uh, that's kind of like what pastors are supposed to do. And it's an expectation we put on church leaders, right? So people come to you and they're having problems and they kind of look at you like, say something helpful, right? Well, that's kind of a picture of what it ought to look like for all of us. The, rea- the reality is that all of us ought to be in shepherding kinds of relationships with each other. It's not just something pastors do. In fact, it's something pastors and teachers ought to be equipping every person to do in every relationship. Okay, every contact you have this week is an opportunity for you to speak Christ to those people, to speak Christ into their life. Now, how does that work for you? Well, it depends on your unique gifts, abilities, passions, interests, and where God has placed you. You know, it, it doesn't mean you have to always whip out your Bible, you know, lay hands on people, pray. Not that that's not a good thing to do. You know, God opens up those doors. But God may use your unique giftedness in different ways to do that. But I do know this. It only happens in relationships. Uh, now, some of those relationships can take the format of Facebook. You know, I have a lot of Facebook relationships. And I do speak a lot. I try to speak a lot of Jesus into these email interactions, Right? In some ways, it's kind of easier because I can actually have time to think of what I should say, you know, instead of sometimes what I just say without thinking. Um, but every, it means relationship. Okay, it means connecting. It means taking time in our busy schedules for people to hear. It means listening. It means hearing people's stories hearing their hurt and their pain, and in the ways that God has enabled and gifted you, speaking His love, speaking His purpose, speaking His heart into people's lives. Um, Let's pray.